Welcome back, everybody, to Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace. No intro music today. Actually, there's hardly ever any intro music except for the last episode, and that was a fluke, and you're not going to get that again, although I do like that song. <laughs> but anyways, uh, welcome back. My name is Daniel Rogers, and I am your host. Today we're going to talk about something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, and that is pursuing grace. I know I've mentioned this a few times. I might have written an article on it. I might have riffed a little bit on it on the podcast, but I want to talk a little bit more about this idea of pursuing grace and why I think it's actually a bad idea. Now, I think it's uh, something that you have to do at some point in your life, um, as we all have, but eventually uh, pursuing grace, you, you figure out, is is a fruitless endeavor and really, really, really just isn't the way to do it. But before we get to that, though, I want to share with you the story of how I tried to pursue grace, and I wrote about it in a book called How a 25-Year-Old Learned He Wasn't the Only One Going to Heaven. You should get that book if you haven't already. You can get it in PDF on my website. You can get it on Kindle. You can listen to me read the book to you um, if you're a glutton for punishment, <laughs> or you can purchase the book in paperback version off of uh, Amazon. So whichever way, it's okay with me, but I'd really love for you to read it, and I'd love to hear what you think about it. I put a, a lot of effort into that thing, and I really believe in its message, and the feedback that I've gotten from it already has been super encouraging, and so I think that if you want a little bit of uh, more information on why I don't think pursuing grace is necessarily the best idea, then you should read my book, How a 25-Year-Old Learned He Wasn't the Only One Going to Heaven. Okay, so let's talk about this, pursuing grace. So when you think about the word pursuit, and you Google that and you look up a dictionary definition of it, you it means to chase after something for the purpose of, and, and usually these four words are used, of, of defeating, killing, overtaking, and the last word, capturing. I'm actually working on a project exploring each of those four words in detail, but I'm not a greedy person, so I'm going to let you in on the details, give you the inside scoop, all right? So is this really what we want to do with grace? Defeat it? Kill it? Overtake it? Capture it? But the thing is, is that I've actually tried each of these four things, and none of them have brought me any joy at all. In fact, they lead to me you know, destroying, not capturing grace. Let's start with the word uh, defeat. This is probably how most of us were trained to deal with grace, right? Anytime someone brings up grace, whether it's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, or some other passage, we say things like, well, yeah, but what about works? Uh, you know, James 2 says that faith without works is dead, right? So you have to have something. You have to do something. And so we try to defeat grace by denying it. Some of us do this through omission. We just never preach about grace. And if we ever do preach about grace, it is filled with all kinds of uh, pref prefaces, right? Like, hey, now don't, don't, don't get me wrong here. I'm not talking about faith alone. I'm not talking about uh, salvation by grace alone. I'm, I'm talking about the biblical grace, the grace that comes with a whole lot of effort and we don't even like to talk about. <laughs> so... This word grace is one that many of us haven't even heard preached about in our lives unless it was f with some negative uh, negativity attached to it. 
I have a friend who said that he preached on grace one time, one time, after years and years of being in ministry. And someone came up to him and said, you know, I just think you're preaching too much on grace and not enough on works. It was the first sermon he ever preached on grace, and he was told that it was too much. I have another friend. He was preaching on grace and Jesus and all this uh, for the first time in his in his preaching ministry, and someone came up to him and said, hey, I, I, I think you're just preaching way too much about Jesus and not enough about works. And he took that as a challenge to preach about Jesus even more, which I, I just love. But this is what we've done. We've tried to defeat grace by debating against it, by arguing against it, by flinching anytime anyone mentions it. And, we've, and in doing so, we've put so much pressure on ourselves to get it right. We don't allow ourselves to grow and to explore and to play and have fun with our faith, to experiment and try new things, different methods of worship, different, different styles of worship, different ways of talking about God and talking about our faith. In defeating grace, we've pretended like there's this perfect church out there, and if we could just replicate its actions and its steps and its procedures and its methods and its forms of worship, then we can be perfect too. And I feel like such an approach to our faith just just ruins it. It just ruins grace. Remember, grace is meant to be a gift. It's a free gift, as we think about in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. It's something that comes on the basis of our faith, not on the basis of our works, as Paul explains in Romans 4. And while we've already talked about on this podcast, uh, I think at least, the difference and the similarities between Romans 4 and James chapter 2, I'll just reiterate here, James 2, 17, faith without works is dead, is, is not about someone's faith, like when they first start out being a Christian, when they first start out believing in Jesus. It's about mature Christians who ought to have known better, and the works that he's talking about in James 2 aren't like repent, confess, be baptized, live faithfully. <laughs> the works in James 2 are if you see someone in need, help them out. Don't just give them lip service. It's loving your neighbor as yourself. That's the idea in James chapter 2. And Romans 4, however, is focused more on the point of justification, whereas James 2 is talking about how a, act, how a faith naturally produces action and naturally produces works. And if, if it doesn't, then it must not be a very strong faith anyways, right? But anyways, we try to defeat grace, defeat grace, and in doing so, we pit Bible passage against Bible passage, and we argue with each other, and we don't listen to each other, and it's just a miserable way to live. And so eventually when we start to realize that, yes, grace must exist, and yes, it even exists for us too, one of the things that we do, one of the tendencies that we have is to systematize it. We try to kill it. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He goes on to say in that same chapter that the ministry of death, which was engraved in stones— What's he talking about? He's talking about the Ten Commandments, right? The old law. And he says that that was a ministry of death. He says that that, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. If Paul could say that about a law engraved on stones by God himself, then what do you think Paul would say about all of our lists? And I don't care if it's admit, believe, confess, or hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized, or believe, repent, baptism, remission of sins, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
whatever list that you come up with, whatever try, whatever way you try to fit God into your particular box and systematize the salvation process or, or demand that everybody else's walk with Christ looks just like yours from the time that you first hear to the way that you're baptized to the timing of your baptism to the way that you worship and the way you live now, you have just killed grace. I really, I really do believe that. When we, when we try to fit it into a list, when we try to fit it into steps and procedures, we are killing grace. Why? Because grace is supposed to be a gift. If it's a list that you can, that you can uh, adhere to and steps that you can follow, like a car manual, then it's no longer grace. It goes back to being you. Think about the plan of salvation. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. How many of those things have anything to do with what God does? All of that is on you. You have to hear. You have to believe. You have to put in the effort to repent. You have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Son of God. You have to submit to baptism. You've got to get down into the water. There's nothing in there about the Holy Spirit giving the increase. There's nothing in there about God granting unto you the repentance that leads to life, as he did to the Gentiles in uh, Peter's commentary on the situation in in Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 15. There's nothing in there about God transforming your life, about creating, making you a new creation. All of the steps are about you and what you can do. Because remember, when we think about what it means to hear the gospel, what we really mean is faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So what we really mean is reading and studying your Bible. Yes, you can hear it through a sermon, but you have to study like the Bereans and make it your own. Work out your own salvation, we would say, uh, from Philippians chapter 2. And all of this is a way that we kill grace. We, we systematize it. Um, there's actually a quote. I'm, I'm going to pull this off my shelf. I'll be right back. Hang on. We're not, we're not going far. I was reading this book called Backpacking with the Saints, and there's a section in there by Kierkegaard, and he has some just really awesome stuff, uh, really awesome stuff that I want to share with you here. <clears throat> this is on page... Uh, 76 for those of you keeping score he says that there's there's these people he calls the systematizers they reduce absolute truth to neatly packaged ideas that stimulated the mind he wanted Kierkegaard wanted instead a truth that could change one's lives change one's life he says the machine continues to go on despite the spirit having vanished isn't that what we do the spirit the machine goes on, but the spirits vanish. That's what we've created salvation into. A machine, a well-oiled machine that has all of the lips, lists and steps and procedures and reads more like a recipe than it does a, a transformation of one's life through the gospel of Christ. He says that Kierkegaard complained that Christianity in his day had been safely reduced to an idea stored in the dusty pages of Scripture. What it needs is someone, quote, who in fear and trembling before God has the courage to forbid people to read the Bible, end quote. It is to be lived, not footnoted, with meticulous reference to chapter and verse. Downgrading it to a matter of doctrinal correctness misses the point entirely. Quote, Christ has not appointed assistant professors, he said, but followers, that right there, that's some good stuff. And I know that part about not reading the Bible might shock somebody. But his point is, is that sometimes we, as, as the message translation of John chapter 5 says, we can get our noses stuck in our Bibles and miss Jesus. 
we think that just because we can quote passages and we we can attend a well put together orderly reverent worship service that we have a relationship with God when really those things are cheap substitutions for who God really is. I spent so much of my time pursuing grace in the comfort of my office, reading books and writing essays and papers without actually being transformed by Jesus, without actually knowing Jesus. This kills grace. It kills grace. Okay, so we have defeat, where we try to argue against grace, prove it wrong, or just avoid it altogether. We try to kill grace by systematizing it, by putting it into a box, and that doesn't work because uh, the Spirit goes where He wants, as John chapter 4 says. Oh, I have to give an illustration on that before we move on. I've got a friend named Wayne, and he gives this illustration too. He, he talks about all the different ways that, that Jesus healed people. If you read through Matthew, you start in Matthew chapter 8. He touches people. He speaks to people. He uh, casts out demons with his, with his words. Uh, there's one place where in Matthew 8, this man comes to him and he says, I need you to heal my servant. And Jesus says, yeah, I'll come. And he's like, no, you don't have to. Just just speak the word and it'll happen. So Jesus heals people long distance. Uh, and that doesn't charge him. He <laughs> doesn't charge him any extra, by the way. And sometimes Jesus uh, spits into some dirt and rubs it in somebody's eye. And that's how he heals them. Well, could you imagine all these different people saying, hey, you know, we're going to start a church. It's going to be the touching church. If you've been touched by Jesus, you can come on to our church or you have the other church. This is the word only church. Now, sorry if some of you uh, old word only people cringed when I said that. I did myself. And then he says, he says, uh, and then you have one guy who's sitting by himself in a church called the spitting church because he's the only one that Jesus spit on <laughs> to, uh, to bring about healing. How silly would that be? And yet that's what we've done. You know, I've got a friend uh, that I used to study with, and he told me about his salvation experience, and his was a it was an experience. And when I related to him mine, again, mine was like the steps and putting together some children's toys on Christmas. I did this, and then I did this, and I did this, and it happened on June the 20th, and then I did this, and I was baptized, and then I did this, and, and then I did this, and now I'm living faithfully. It's like, Really? You know, one is one is a list of things. The other is a story, right? And as much as we try to make the Bible fit into this story, the, the conversions accounts vary. Cornelius was baptized with the Holy Spirit before he was baptized in water. The Philippian jailer took the time to wash Paul and Silas's stripes, a symbol of, of reconciliation and repentance, before he immediately, you know, quote-unquote, got into the water. Uh, the Spirit led Philip to the eunuch, and they studied the prophet Isaiah, before the eunuch demanded to be baptized. There's, there's, there's differences between those accounts. God shows up in different ways, and we have to be comfortable with that and comfortable allowing the people in our life to have their own unique conversion experience. Now, baptism is a symbol that brings us all together in that. It's a, it's a public identifying mark. But uh, the baptism part itself, most of the time, is, uh, you know, the last part of the story. It's not the most interesting part of the story. <laughs> you know, riding in the eunuch, riding with the eunuch in the uh, chariot and having the conversation, that's interesting. The, uh, the tears that the people shed on Pentecost, that's interesting. The baptism is a seal of everything that, of everything that happened before, a sign of everything that happened before. But sometimes we want to force everybody else into our particular conversion experience. 
And that's not the right way to do it. That kills grace. That doesn't, that restricts the Holy Spirit. And as some have said in the past, since God is omnipresent, (laughs) the minute that you think you have him locked down into a box, what you have in there is no longer God. We've got to be open to God working in other ways that are outside of our comfort zone, like the man who is casting out demons without being part of Jesus' gang. But we're not okay with that. But we need to become okay with that. Otherwise, we'll end up killing grace. So we have defeat. We have kill. Uh, Let's see, overtake. Oh, this is a good one. How many of us have tried to overtake grace? Think about what that means, overtake grace. You're like, yeah, yeah, grace is grace is a thing. I believe in grace. And you know, I, and I don't think that James 2 and Romans 4 are against each other. I think those passages complement each other and I'm t- I totally believe that I'm saved by grace through faith. That's right. And I'm going to work my tail off to prove it. And so you spend every single day <laughs> constantly critiquing yourself. Oh, what are my intentions today? Was this good good intentions or bad intentions and why did I do this and why did I do that and oh man, did I did I mess up there? Do I need to pray for forgiveness? And you spend all of your life in like total anxiety without being confident in that grace because you feel like you have to overtake it. You feel like you have to have to, you know, work it out, you know. And it can be so hard just to trust in what God has already done for you. I'm reminded of of Adam and Eve. You know, in Genesis one, God creates them in his image, right? And then in Genesis three the serpent says, you'll not surely die for the, in the day that you eat of that fruit, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Why didn't they trust in the ways that they were already like God? Why didn't they trust in the ways that they were already made in God's image? Why did they have to reach out and take more? We're all made in the image of God, but that doesn't mean that we have all the attributes or all the responsibilities of God. And yet they wanted to reach out and take more. When Solomon asks for wisdom, he asks to know good and evil so that he could judge the people. Why do we feel like we have to be judge? Why do we feel like we have to take on that responsibility? Why do we feel like we have to be so judgmental towards ourselves, evaluating every little thing that we do, worrying about all the mistakes that we've made, all the ways that we're imperfect? Because as soon as Adam and Eve took that fruit, they realized they were naked. And as soon as we try to overtake grace, we realize all the different ways that we fall short. Yeah. Pursuing grace, pursuing grace leaves us depleted and exhausted and anxious. It's not a good path to take. And this imagery of reaching out and trying to pursue grace is found oh, so all through Scripture. I'll just give you one more example, though. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter, uh, chapter 3 talks about how he tried to pursue grace. He was, he was blameless when it came to his righteousness that was according to the law. He was zealous for his faith. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, circumcised the eighth day. Sorry, ladies. And, you know, you can't have that accolade, right? And so, but in Philippians 3, he says, But I count all this for loss. All this is loss. All, everything that I had to gain according to the flesh is nothing to me. It's like dung, he says. Why? For the, surpass, the surpassing riches of knowing Christ, of being conformed to his death and participating in his resurrection. That's what really matters. Not overtaking it, not trying to outwork it, 
not trying to earn it or feel like you deserve it or feel like you're worthy of it. All that is a fruitless endeavor. And it just leaves us exhausted and it makes us realize that we're, that we're all really just naked before God. But you know what? God knew that they were naked the whole time, didn't he? And he still wanted to walk with them in the cool of the evening. He still wanted a relationship with them. The divine wanted to be in their presence despite their nakedness. It wasn't God that had a problem with it. It was Adam and Eve. And it's not God that has a problem with our brokenness and our problems and our shortcomings. It's us. It's you and me. We get to worrying about it, and we get to trying to cover up ourselves with fig leaves of righteous acts or of, of our good attitudes or our smiles on our face. And we never admit that we can't do it because we're just too proud. And yet God knows the truth, right? And if we would just accept the truth ourselves, that God loved us even when we were naked, then we could have that kind of peace. And yet we don't. We run and we chase and we pursue grace covering up ourselves with all sorts of insufficient fig leaves and then beating ourselves up when we fall flat on our face instead of just trusting in the divine image that's been present with us the whole time. Yeah. And the more we try to hold on to it and chase after it and figure it out, the further we get away from Eden and the sadder we become. We just have to learn to relinquish control. It's not about pursuing grace. It's about learning learning the art of slowing down enough to let grace catch up with you. And that's where we come to the last one. We have we've had defeat, kill, overtake, and now capture. That's one thing I've tried to do is capture grace, tame it. Yeah, I accept it. Yeah, I understand I don't have to work it off. Yeah, I'm not gonna systematize it, but boy am I gonna understand grace. <laughs> <laughs> Am I going to control it by through knowledge, through learning and studying and how does the cross work and how does the afterlife work and how does baptism work and how does how does mercy work and you know what about this and what about that and let me let me read another book. And yet the motivation for all that is I want to figure it out. I want to know it. But that's a fruitless endeavor as well. Why? Because Ecclesiastes talks about there's no end to the books that we could read. There's no end to the learning. Even John says that there's not enough books in the world to contain all that Christ has done for us. And In other words, there's not enough books in the world to contain the definition of grace. And yet we pursue it relentlessly. We hide book purchases from our spouse. <laughs> We underline and we highlight and we scribble in the margins. And it's a never-ending race. It's a never-ending pursuit. I love 1 Corinthians 8. I probably use it too much. Or maybe I don't use it enough. Everyone has knowledge. Knowledge puffs us up, makes us conceited. But love edifies. If anyone thinks, if anyone thinks that he has known anything at all, he has not yet known as he ought to know, but whoever loves is known by God. Man, what a beautiful thought. And we just we just ignore that, don't we? We hate that passage. Why? Because we got to know. We got to figure it out. Let's read, let's read some systematic theologies together. Let's sit around and debate Karl Barth. Maybe we can figure out what all this grace stuff is. Go to another lectureship. Attend another gospel meeting. 
wake up an hour earlier to read even more of the Bible? Why can't we just be content knowing that God knows us? Would we rather know facts about God or would we rather perfectly be known by God? Yes, Peter says that we are to grow in knowledge. We are to add to faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, etc. And he says in 2 Peter 3 that we are to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of God. But there's a difference in memorizing facts about God in order to feel like that's going to bring you closer and a closer relationship to God. And learning more about God simply because your, your joy and your love for the divine is so powerful that it compels you to dig for more. I think, I think that's where I'm at now. I'm not so much reading and learning and studying because I feel like I have to in order for me to have a relationship with God. I'm reading and studying and learning and digging and researching out of my love for God. I'm just so happy to be in this relationship with our Father and with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit that I want to keep studying and learning. It's fun to me now. I'm no longer doing it as a out of the need to survive, right? That's what it was before. I was scared to death of not knowing. I felt like I had to know, so I bought all kinds of books on atonement theory and the afterlife and all this other stuff because I just had to know. I had to figure it out. And now I'm not worried as much anymore because God knows me. Now everything I learn is a bonus, is a plus. It helps me help other people, and that's that's all I really care about now. Because I have a relationship with God. Grace is caught up with me. And when grace catches up with you, it overwhelms you. There's not much else you have to worry about because you are known by God. You don't have to defeat grace through trying to to debate it. Stop that. Cut that out. What are you doing? The Bible talks about grace. You got to get used to it. (laughs) It's in there. You can't debate it away. And stop trying to kill grace with your lists and your demands and your contracts and your obligations. That's no gift. You're putting way too much pressure on yourself. You're taking way too much credit for yourself. Cut that out too. And stop trying to overtake grace through critiquing every little thing you do and pushing yourself to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect. Genesis chapter 1 says, Genesis chapter 1 says it is good. It is very good. Not perfect. (laughs) Now yes, Matthew 5 does say, I can already hear it, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But even that passage is about loving your enemies and loving your neighbors. It's not about moral perfection. He's not saying that you have to never sin in order to be a, a child of God. And stop trying to capture grace. Don't study because you feel like you have to in order to be a good Christian or, or in order to have it all figured out. Just study from the love, from your love of God and from your, your pride and in, in being a child of God. Everything you learn is a bonus, is a plus. It doesn't make you better than the next person. It can make you more appreciative, sure, but it's not the basis of your salvation. Slow down. You don't have to be in a hurry. And my friend, let grace catch up with you. You are made in the image of God. Jesus, Jesus died for you. Jesus was raised so that you could be justified. Jesus has revealed who God is. He's not like the one talent man says, says he is, you know. 
reaping where he does not sow. If you think that, that's how you're going to be judged. You're going to live your life miserably. That's not how God is. God loves you. God wants to relate, have a relationship with you. You're not having to pursue grace. Grace is pursuing you. God is following you out in the wilderness to carry you back on his shoulders, like the good shepherd in Luke 15. God is sweeping the house until you're found. God is sprinting out to fall on your neck and kiss you and throw a party for you. That's who God is. Stop pursuing grace. I know that's the title of the podcast, and I know it's not changing anytime soon, I reckon, because everybody does it. People who find this podcast are probably still trying to pursue grace through one of these ways. Shoot, I'm still trying to pursue grace through one of these ways sometimes, too. But slow down enough to let grace catch up. You don't have to prove anything. You don't have to have all the answers. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. Yes, that's, that, that's, that's another passage that you could probably quote at me. Thank you for that. I hadn't thought about that one. <laughs> but do you know what that text says? Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. What is he talking about there? Hey, why are you happy today? Why do you have so much hope? Because I've slowed down enough to let grace catch up. That passage isn't about having all the answers figured out and being able to debate your Baptist friends on baptismal regeneration. (laughs) That passage is being able to give an account of how grace is caught up with you and of why you believe in Jesus. It's not about mastering apologetics. Apologetics hurts me more than it helps, to be honest with you. But I don't believe in God because I can prove it on paper through a complicated argument. I believe in God because when I go out on a, on a hike and look out over the valley, I feel the presence of the divine swell up within me. I feel a joy rise within me every time I look at one of my children. I feel the comfort of God when I embrace my wife. And I feel God's patience and kindness and guiding hand in every aspect of my life, the good times and the bad, because grace is caught up with me. I'm no longer in pursuit. And I don't always feel that. I don't, I don't want you to get the impression that my life is perfect. But the times that I do feel it make the times that I don't a lot easier to bear. Yeah. Hey, so uh, a few more things, a little few notes before we uh, go away. Uh, Kevin's still going to join me on the podcast. He hasn't been able to because his internet was shot after the uh, tornado went through Oklahoma. So he hasn't been able to join us yet, but he's but he's planning on it. Like I said, we've we recorded half a podcast. It just didn't stick. And then we have um, another guest. Oh, my friend Sherry. She's an Episcopal rector. She's going to come and join us. And then we're also going to talk about a few subjects that some of you have requested. Uh, next up, we have elderships. We're going to talk about elderships. The particular question was how to overthrow an eldership. Um, we actually are going to talk about that, <laughs> funnily enough. Um, we're going to dig a little deeper in regarding the work of the Holy Spirit, as was requested. Why doesn't God answer? Ooh, oh, we'll talk about that too. Uh, contemplative practice in the Christian tradition. There's uh, some 
potential guests that have been suggested for that. We'd like to get in. And then we have a lot of questions that have been asked by several of you about what is the image of God? Uh, what about confession? Um, what about God's will for mankind, like the dominion mandate and things like that? Uh, what's the mission and purpose of Jesus coming to earth? And a few other things about the kingdom of God and time and stuff like that. So we've got a lot to cover. And I've got your lists, and I'm going to follow those closely and try to put out material that is helpful to you. If you want to join in on the discussion and make requests for podcast topics, then why don't you join the Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace Facebook page, or you can go to my website, danielr.net, hit the contact thing and send me an email, and uh, make your requests be made known. You have not because you ask not. (laughs) So ask me your questions, and I'll do my best answer. Have a great day, my friends. Thanks for joining me on this. Slow down. Let grace catch up with you. Stop trying to pursue it. You'll end up killing it, defeating it, overtaking it, or capturing it, and none of us want that to happen. God bless you all.